Today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you some perspectives that God might have on prayer that would maybe even answer some of the questions that we have about prayer in advance. Think of it like this. Let's say you have a big ask that you need to make of someone. So maybe the ask is, well, you're going to try to, you know, make this sale that nobody has seen a sale this size in your or company. Or maybe you're seeking some big investment in this new venture, or you're looking for donations, the biggest donation that, that your nonprofit has ever seen. So you're going to make a big ask. But the person that you need to make the big ask of, maybe you've never met before. And that can be a little bit tricky. Because what's their decision-making grid? And what are their idiosyncrasies? I mean, you might show up with a pink shirt and they don't like pink, right? And you've got all your spreadsheets to show them, you know, why this should work this way and that. And they don't like spreadsheets. Okay? So you, you, you might go in, someone said, go, go be bold and confident. And they don't like bold and confident. So they can be tricky, right? But what if you got some inside scoop? What if someone told you about that person in advance, told you some different things about them? Like they're like casual, so no coat and tie. Or, or maybe they, they, they tell you that they love kids, and so you ask about their kids, or you show what you're, what you're asked, how it ties in into kids. Or maybe they're really into measurables, right? They're sort of a nerd, and they've got to sort of see everything sort of knocked out and how you're going to address it, so you, you come in with your, your grids that way. That sort of information would be pure gold, because now you'd feel a lot more confident going in and approaching that person and making that ask. And I think the same would be true with God as well. That there's some things that we could learn about God that if we, we understand these things, it would shape the way that we would approach Him and maybe even answer some of the questions that we have about this thing called prayer before we would even ask them. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share with you some thoughts that I think that God might have on prayer. And here's the first one. The first one is this. I'm here, I love you, let's talk. I'm here, I love you, let's talk. Now, I love getting in conversations with people about life and God all the time, and sometimes people have questions about God's existence, like, does he really exist? Or we just made him up in our, our minds. But most people, in Houston at least, and really throughout the United States, most people believe there is a God or some sort of higher power. So the question isn't, is there a God? The question is, what's that God like? And so for some people, that God is like a, a cosmic Santa Claus, and you do good, and you know, if you do enough good, and you get something good at the end of the year. For some people, God's like a personal force. You've got to get inside yourself, tap into it for good or evil. It's like Star Wars, right? You know, tapping into the, the force that way. For other people, God, well, there needed to be a God to get this started, but, you know, he's just kind of disinterested, just looks at us in amusement. Or he's an evil dictator, and he's just looking to smash us. People have different views of what, what God is like. That's the big question. Well, when we look to what the scriptures have to say, I think one of the things that we could say about what this God is like is that he's a God who would say, I'm here and I love you, let's talk. And we think of prayer as that thing that we do to, towards God, but the reason that prayer is even a thing is because God is there inviting us to come into conversation with him. And so in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus, he says these words, he says, I stand at the door and knock. Metaphorically, I stand at the door and knock. 
if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. You see, this doesn't sound like a distant or uninterested or, or you know, a, a God who's really doesn't like what he's made. This, this is a God who, who wants to get in there with us, who wants to hear our stories, who wants to hear what's going on in our lives, who, who, who wants to interact with us, who wants to give us advice, who wants to share things with us. Now, there's places in Scripture where we see God disciplining people, kind of gone off track and disciplines people and Scriptures even say that God's doing that today at times. But one thing that's really clear in Scripture is that God doesn't take joy in that. Any more than a parent does, a good parent, right? It's not like, oh, you know, they took cookies from the cookie jar. You know, <laughs> what kind of discipline do I get to dish out, right? I mean, God's not thinking that way at all. He takes no joy in that. And Ezekiel, the, the prophet, says, I, I take no joy in dishing out this punishment here. What he takes joy in is when we are willing to see him as a trusted father and enter into conversation with him. So Jesus, in one of the biographies of his life that we see in the Bible, said this. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Rhetorical question, right? I mean, no good mom and dad is going to give a stone when someone asks for bread or snake when they ask for a fish. And Jesus goes on and he says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven good give gifts to those who ask him? So what Jesus is saying here, he says, if you trust your father and mother, or if you trust a friend, or you, you trust these neighbors or colleagues or brothers or sisters, you're willing to go in and have conversations with them and, and to ask things of them, maybe even ask a, a favor of them. And God is saying, if you're willing to do that of these people who aren't perfect, who do evil things at times, why aren't you willing to come to me? Because I'm here. And I love you. And I want to talk. Now, the second thing that God might say to us in regards to prayer is this. No, I can't say yes to everything. And believe me, you don't want me to. <laughs> now, some of us have become jaded by prayer because maybe we prayed for something and it was even a meaningful thing and it didn't come to pass. We didn't get what we wanted out of it. And so we, we wonder, well, is God really there? Or maybe he's there, but he doesn't really care about me. Now, that could be one conclusion. Another conclusion could be that God has good reasons not to answer that prayer in the affirmative. You might say, well, what I'm asking for, it's, you know, you know it's for my child to be healed or something like that. What, why, what good reason could there be that God wouldn't answer that prayer in that way? I don't know what reason that would be. But just because we can't see the reason doesn't mean there isn't one. If God is the master chess player, then there's going to be times when he's going to make moves that we cannot understand, but it doesn't mean that it's not a good move. So there's a portion 
of Israel's history when they were ruled by judges. They're not judges like today, right? Judges, you go into a courtroom today, they decide a case. That wasn't the judges of the Old Testament. The judges were people that were, they were part sort of spiritual leaders, although they often weren't very good at that. And they were part military rulers where they would lead Israel into battles when the enemies would, would come against them. And so there were this odd mix. And it was a strange arrangement for 300 years of people of Israel being led by these judges. No other nation had it that way. Other nations had kings and all the pomp and circumstances. They had the palaces and the robes and the crowns and that kind of thing. But not the Israelites. They had judges. And they looked at these other nations and they said, you know, some of these nations seem to be doing better than us. Maybe that's what we need. We need a king. That will, that will do it for us. God's like, you don't need a king. You need to get back to me. But the people are adamant. They said, we want a king. Give us a king. God says, okay. If that's what you want, you can have a king. And as you might guess, it didn't turn out very well. Saul was their king. He was big. He was handsome. Everybody looked at him and said, oh, he can play the part. He'll be a really good king for us. He was a disaster of a king. He was shaking in his boots when any enemy of any size came up against him. He, he would do rash kinds of things. He would send his men out in battles and they wouldn't be allowed to eat while they're in battle. And anybody who was successful underneath him, he'd try to knock him off because he was so nervous about his own position and power. He was a terrible king. And you have to wonder if some people said, why in the world did we uh, force God sort of in this, into this proposition of having a king? He said, no, we should have listened to him. <laughs> You know, over the years, it's been my privilege just in being in relationship with a lot of people to, to hear about a lot of marriages. And some marriages going great and some marriages not so good. And in some cases, some of those marriages, you know, it's two good-natured people and they get married, but they sweep some things under the rug over the years and soon there's a big mound and now they've got to deal with it. In other cases, it's, it's two people who from the very beginning really weren't interested in God and listening to him and they were just lonely and they wanted to get together and boy it was a mess from the start see because there's worse things than loneliness and God knows that there's worse things than loneliness and so sometimes even in situations like that he'll say no not yet it's not time and we're in those situations and we say man I don't want that answer and it doesn't seem good God has good reasons sometimes for saying no. We don't want him to say yes all of the time. Well, third thing that God might say about prayer is this. Pray bigger prayers. Pray bigger prayers. Now, probably most of you or a lot of you here, if you've got enough age on you, have negotiated for something big in your life. So a car, a house, some sort of new position or salary, whatever the case might be. And maybe before you did that, you sort of got all your ducks in line and you figured out your arguments and I'm going to go in, I'm going to ask them for this and I'm going to say this and that and to give them my position and, and uh, you know, this is, this is how I'm going to do it and I'm going to stand strong. And then you go in for the negotiation and you sort of lay out your case and without any resistance, they agree to all the terms. Now, in one sense, it's pretty good. Like you got what you wanted. In another sense, if you've ever been in that position, you say, man, I left something on the table. I could have even gotten a better deal out of, out of that. 
And you know, sometimes I think we do that with God. Like we, we ask God of things, but we really under-negotiate. We don't ask for things sort of big enough. So God, I think he's interested in the little things of our lives. I mean, our vacations or, you know, you know what school maybe we should go to or, you know, maybe he's, he's interested in, well, is it this house or that house? They're kind of the same, but which one? I think he's interested in those things. But sometimes I wish, or I think he wishes, that we would just grow up a little bit and ask for even bigger things. So one of the things that's really clear throughout the Bible is this, is that, that God says, don't spend all your time thinking about the stuff that builds your own little kingdom here. About accumulating all the things that makes your little lifestyle better. Because all that's not going to last into the future. Set your mind on the things that will last forever. It's people, Really? He says, think about ways that you can and help them and move them towards the Lord. That's the bigger thing. So Jesus, right, so intentional with his disciples. From the very beginning, first day that he meets them, he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, they're fishermen already, right? They're fishers of fish. And sometimes Jesus gives them more fish. That's great. And sometimes God wants us to ask for, Lord, can I have some more fish? And he's okay with that. But sometimes he wants us to think bigger than that. He wants us to be fishers of men, not just fishers of fish. So Jesus, at the end of time, right, or the end of the time on earth, he says, go to his disciples and make disciples. And don't just do it in your little villages and towns. It's not enough. But go and do that across the whole earth. He wants them to, to go big here. And sometimes our prayers are just too small. They're just about our little stuff. And we're not praying about bigger things. We're not praying for our neighbors who are no, we know are struggling. We're not praying for the kids that are growing up in, in tough neighborhoods here in Houston. We're not praying for people in North Korea who are going through oppression like we can't even imagine. We're just about our little stuff. And I think sometimes God says, just pray bigger prayers. Again, it's not that he isn't interested in little things. My wife, she loses things all the time and she's always praying for them. <laughs> and she finds them. Like, I think the Lord listens to her all the time. In fact, our kids call her up and say, I lost this. You know, they're on the other side of the country. She says, I'll pray. Then they find it. I think God listens to her prayers, okay, about the little things. But sometimes I still think that he wishes that we would grow up and just ask for bigger things and not leave things on the table. On Psalm 67, there's a little prayer. It starts like this. And if you've been around the church for a while. You've probably heard these words. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Oh, that's nice. God bless me. Bless me in what I'm doing here. But that's not the end of the psalm. It goes on. It says, so that your ways may be known on earth and your salvation among all nations. Yes, bless me, Lord. But bless me that I might be a blessing to other people. That's the kind of prayer that I think God likes to hear from us. A bigger kind of, of prayer. Well, the fourth thing that God might say to us about prayer is this. You might as well fess up to your failures because I know about them already. <laughs> now, one of the big questions that people have about prayer is this. Why do I have to go tell God everything? He, doesn't he already know things? Well, he does. But oftentimes, it's valuable 
even in human relationships, for us to tell things to people even though they already know them. For example, so I've been married quite a while. I've said a lot of stupid things to my wife over the years, right? I've been impatient. I've been unkind. I've been rude. I've been mean. I've said those things. Now, I can assure you that virtually every single time that I've said something that's, say, mean, she hasn't, she knows it. I don't have to inform her of that. I don't have to say, oh, honey, by the way, just what I said, that was mean. She knows it's mean, but she still needs to hear it from me. She still needs to hear me come to her and say, you know, I'm sorry. What I said there wasn't nice at all. I think the same is true with God. You see, my relationship with my wife, it'll sort of stay in this stuck mode. In fact, stuff can really build up if I don't ever say the things that she already knows are true, those failures that she already knows are true. And the same will be true with God. If we aren't willing to sort of fess up to our failures, there'll be a stuck place there. So I love the scene that comes out of the first few chapters of the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. The background to Ezra is this, is the people of Israel have gotten way off God. And God for years had said, if you don't come back to me, you know, the disaster is going to come to your nation. And so they didn't come back to him and disaster comes to their nation. This as would be expected. And, and it comes in the form of the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar and comes in and he destroys everything, kills most of the people, takes some off his slaves, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. Everything's a mess. Now God, because he often leaves a window open for us to come back to him, some 70 or so years later, allows some of the Jews who had been scattered to come back to Israel. And so they go back, and what's really telling is what they do when they get back to the land. Because the first thing that they do is they, they go to the temple site, the old temple site that had been completely destroyed, and they rebuild the altar. They rebuild the altar. Because the altar is that place where people would come before God admitting their sins and they'd offer the sacrifice saying, Lord, make atonement for my sins because what we've done is wrong. Have mercy on us. Now God already knew of their sins. That was nonetheless the right place to start. And for you and I, so oftentimes that's the right place for us to start is simply by coming to the Lord and facing up to our failures. So the relationship can move forward from there. Well, fifth thing that I think that God might say about prayer is this. Why are you asking me over and over again when I've already spelled out my answer? So some of you probably in this room are in HR, have worked in HR at some point in time. If you're part of an HR department, one of your tasks is to create the employee handbook, right? And in the employee handbook, you've got the mission and the values and what you can wear at work and can't wear, and what you can say and can't say. And you've got the, the holidays and the days off and the sick days and the 401k and all of that sort of stuff in the employee handbook. And oftentimes you have to, hand, you have to as a new employee, you have to sign that you've read the employee handbook, right? Now, I don't know how many people actually read the employee handbook, but nonetheless, they sign off that they have read the employee handbook. Well, of course, if you've worked in HR, sometime later, maybe weeks, maybe months, people come knocking on your door. And they ask things of you. Like, do we get this day off? You know, or what's my retirement options? And sometimes I think HR people must be going, didn't you read the book? 
It's there. It's on page three in bold, 16-point font. You know, there it is. And yet here you are asking. And I think God must feel the same way sometimes because he's put it in the book. He's put a lot of things in the book, and yet we keep asking him even though he's made it really clear in here. So for years and years, I used to ask God, 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 what do you want me to do? Now, this was already after I was involved in ministry, so it wasn't that kind of decision, but I wanted more specificity. God, just tell me what you want me to do, and then I'll be in on that. But I never really got an answer. You know, I didn't get any sign from heaven or shivers down my spine or, you know, some epiphany moment. I just didn't get it. But what God made more and more clear to me is that the answer is already here. The purpose of life is already here. I didn't really need to ask him about it. I just needed to get after it. You might be a little curious, like, well, what does the book say? Like, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to be about? I think it's pretty simple, really. The book says, love God, love people, and tell others to do the same. Love God, love others, and tell other people to do the same. I can fill every single day with that. We've got to get my agenda full all the time. But just that, it's already in the book. I don't need to ask God if I'm supposed to be about that. Like, should I love people today or not, God? I don't have to ask him that at all. I just got to get about it. Now, I might pray for him for strength or for wisdom in regards to that, but I don't need to pray to him whether, you know, I need to do that or not. (laughs) So there's this great little book in the Old Testament. It's called Esther. It's about Esther. Esther's this beautiful Jewish woman. So beautiful, she gets to become, through the series of events, the queen over the entire Persian Empire. Now, there's this other guy who's living at the same time as, as uh, Esther, and she, he kind of cozies in next to the king. And, and he's not a good guy. He's all into himself, and he hates Jews. I mean, hates Jews. In fact, he gets the king to sign off on this bill, this law, that sets a date for the extermination of all Jews throughout the whole kingdom. Holocaust. Now, you might say, well, why would the king sign off on that if his own queen is a Jew? simple answer is he didn't know she was a Jew. Well, Esther catches wind of this. And, and partly she catches wind of this because her uncle says this. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Like, the guillotine's coming for you too. But then he goes on and says, but who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. That God has put you in this position to stand up for, for the Jewish people at this time. Now, it's really interesting to note here is that we don't see Esther wringing her hands going, I wonder what I'm supposed to do and praying about it for weeks and months and going into all this consultation. Not at all. In fact, she writes a note right back to her uncle. And this is what she says. She says, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. Even though it's against the law to go and uninvited, even if you're the queen. And if I perish... I perish. Now, what I want you to note here is that she's not asking for them to fast so that she can come to a decision about whether she will go to the king. She's already decided she's going to go to the king. She knows that's what she's supposed to do. She's supposed to stand up for her people. The fasting is about the strength and the wisdom to do that. And oftentimes, that's what we need to do in prayer, is not seek answers out for, for questions that God has already answered simply ask him for the strength and the wisdom to carry out what he's already told us.
The sixth thing that God might say about prayer is this. I don't like being last in line. I don't like being last in line. Now, most people, if they believe in God, believe that God is somehow bigger than they are. They don't think of him as just a little fairy on some far-off planet. They think, well, there's a God. He's smarter than me and knows more than me and maybe all-knowing, all-powerful, right? Now, if that's the case, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, wouldn't it make sense to go to him first when we got things stirring on in our life? So in 2 Kings chapter 1, there's the story of this king. His name's Ahaziah. And Ahaziah is king of Israel, and apparently his palace wasn't built to code or something because the text says that he fell through the lattice of his upper room, and, and now he's in really bad shape. Right? Sounds like a big party to me or something. Right? So he's, he's fallen. He's crippled in some way. In fact, it looks like it could be even fatal. He's still conscious, but he, he asks his messengers, those who are servants, to go and to to find out whether he's going to die or not. And where he's going to send them is to Beelzebub, the god of Hekron. Now, Beelzebub's just a statue, a man-made statue. So he's not going to hear anything from Beelzebub, but he might hear from the, the priests of Beelzebub. And so he sends his messengers off, and, and they go along their way, but they get stopped by Elijah, who's a prophet of God. And this is what Elijah says to them. Elijah says, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Like, here's the God of heaven and earth, and, and you're going off to this man-made statue over here to, to ask advice and get consultation? What are you doing that for? Why is I didn't like this? And so he sends another group of messengers and Elijah stops them again. And another group of messengers, Elijah stops them again. Finally, Elijah goes straight to the king and says, what's the deal, king? You know the God who's the God over heaven and earth and you're going to consult Beelzebub, this man-made statue. I don't like being last in line, God says. You know, so oftentimes when things are stirring in our life and we've got a big decision, boy, we'll go talk to these people and we'll, you know, we'll look for this kind of a sign and we'll read the horoscope and we'll, you know, we'll do all kinds of things to sort of discern whether this is the right way. And then maybe we'll tag on a little prayer to God at the end. God says, no, 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 no. I made it all. Come to me. Put me first in line. Doesn't mean that God doesn't speak through people and through events. He can do that. But come to me. God says, Come to me because I'm here and I love you and I want to talk. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we are so gracious. We're so thankful for your graciousness towards us that you would want to dine with us, Lord. That you want to hear from us and talk with us and give us good gifts even more. Lord, we admit our failures. Oftentimes we fall short. But we are so grateful, God, that you will still listen to us, Father. So Lord, help us to turn our face to you, to pour out our hearts and our lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.